Welcome everyone to FF Plus, your weekly outlet for new release reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free. I'm your host, Aaron White. I have two films to talk about today. If you're enjoying the show, as always, we request that you please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, especially. That's a that's a great platform to do it on. If you could rate us, review us anywhere you listen, though, it is much appreciated. It helps us reach a wider audience and bring more people into the conversations that we like to have, both on social media feeds. You can find links to all of that stuff in the show notes to every episode, and also in our Feelin' Film Facebook group, which we'd love to have you come be a part of if you're so inclined. With that said, I don't like to waste your time, so let's get right into the reviews. The first film I'm going to discuss is Violent Night from Universal Pictures. It stars David Harbour, John Leguizamo, Cam Gigandet, Alex Hassel, Alexis Lauder, Leah Brady, Eddie Patterson, and Beverly D'Angelo. It is directed by Tommy Workola, and it is written by Pat Casey and Josh Miller. What's it about? When a group of mercenaries attack the estate of a wealthy family on Christmas Eve, Santa Claus must step in to save the day and Christmas. So you take some Die Hard, Die Hard 2, Home Alone, Christmas Vacation, and Christmas Carol, and a whole heap of other fun references. And you put them in an 80s, 90s action film blender, throw in a heist, and then make it very, very, very bloody and violent, and you get Violent Night. Seriously, the plot is heavily ripped from those films. And it is absolutely predictable and full of tropes. You've got your over-the-top mastermind villain played by Leguizamo and his goofy, expendable, of course, cast of henchmen. And then you've got a family that is struggling to stay together for the audience to root for. And you've got an ultra-rich, self-absorbed, extended family that you're not rooting for. And then you have this depressed Santa who is burned out on the job. He is down in the dumps because he feels that modern culture lacks gratitude. He is worried that Christmas just doesn't matter anymore. He's basically an alcoholic at this point. The story itself doesn't honestly matter that much, though, and it really only serves to put these people in a confined space, present some obstacles for them to overcome, and then have some fun with killing them off one by one in increasingly brutal and hilarious ways. But there's something about the tone of this that keeps it just jolly enough to make the evisceration of bad guys more fun than it is gross or scary. The score has a lot to do with that. The background music, it's constantly happy and bouncy and playing Christmas tunes even when there is blood splattering and body parts flying across the screen. My audience was absolutely raucous from start to finish, and I have to admit that seeing something like this in a crowd definitely added a lot to it. Would it be quite as enjoyable at home? I don't think it would reach the heights that it did in a theater experience, but I think that to some extent, yes, it, it still would be fun. I could see this being a regular seasonal rewatch for people who really enjoy 
the violence of it, the, the comedic violence of it. This is a very darkly comedic and vulgar movie. It, it earns its R rating for sure. So that's something to definitely be aware of. David Harbour owns the screen as the at first very grumpy, but still also caring and ultimately badass Mr. Claus. This is honestly Santa like you've never seen him before with a very unique origin story that I wish had been explored more because it was incredibly interesting. And instead, we just get a taste of it, which just left me with tons of questions. <laughs> at times, the film does take a moment or two to slow down and flesh out Santa a bit. To his credit, Harbour is able to manage these scenes well, and his slowly changing attitude throughout the night makes for a pretty enjoyable arc. In the action realm, Harbour is essentially this giant, overweight, dad bod, Santa, unathletic John Wick. The kills were rarely graceful or happening in the same way. He has to utilize his environment, and he often does so in pretty creative manner, honestly, and sometimes a very explosive fashion. Sadly, most of the cronies are completely forgettable, and Leguizamo himself as the main villain barely works for me. I just had a hard time buying him as such an evil and dangerous dude. He gives it a great effort, but he's not Alan Rickman, that's for sure. It feels like he can't quite get a read on whether the tone wants him to be hammy or dead serious. And so he oscillates between those and it feels kind of distracting to me. The family members also don't stand out much at all either. Beverly D'Angelo plays the matriarch who is just an absolutely vile person. And I guess she does a good job at that. And it's a little bit funny considering her role in Christmas Vacation when you think about her now doing this 40 years later. Uh, Leah Brady stands out somewhat as the young girl named Trudy that Santa befriends. She does a good job, as good as she can, with the material provided. Just understand that it is extremely surface-level stuff here, and the script is meant to be silly and just to provide a reason for hijinks. There is some sweetness to it all, I guess. There is that anti-greed, anti-consumerism message to it in a way, but this isn't a movie that is going to inspire change. One of the most unfortunate things about the film, in fact, is honestly that it indicts the family for some pretty awful behavior, but it never really makes them reckon with it in a satisfying way. You're left at the end kind of feeling like they just got off the hook. I don't want to spoil any of the kills for you, so I'll just wrap up by saying again that it is very bloody. I mean that wholeheartedly. And if you know what you're in for, you should be fine. If you can handle most slasher films, most horror films, this is not more disgusting than them. It's not the kind of movie that has a bunch of innards splashing across the screen, but as it progresses, the kills do become more and more visceral, but in such a fun, so satisfyingly enjoyable way. It's worth it. It's worth seeing this. 
in a theater because this movie slays. See what I did there? Santa. Slay. <laughs> okay. Violet Night will be in theaters on December 2nd. And you know, if you haven't picked up on them already, I definitely recommend checking this one out with a big group of people. If you do, let me know what you think. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. The other film I'd like to share today is After Sun from A24. It stars Paul Mescal, Frankie Corio, and briefly, Celia Rolson Hall. It is directed by Charlotte Wells and written by Charlotte Wells. It is her feature film debut, and she has called it emotionally autobiographical. What's it about? 11-year-old Sophie takes a summer vacation to Turkey with her loving and idealistic father, Callum. 20 years later, she reminisces about the experience, reflecting on their relationship and the parts of him she was not able to know. I usually don't review films that I watch for FYC purposes, that is, strictly sent to me to consider for awards in the Seattle Film Critics Society at the end of the year. And so this next bit that's going to follow may be a little less prepared, because frankly, I don't think I'd be covering it in this episode at all. I didn't think I'd be covering it, I should say. But I haven't been able to stop thinking about this movie and figured I should mention it here, why that is, and encourage those of you who have interest to seek it out or at the very least to put it on your radar so that when it does become more widely available, you'll remember it and you'll make an effort to give it a viewing. The fact that this is Charlotte Wells's feature film, both writing and directorial debut, is honestly stunning. Her vision is laid out so meticulously and is so well-paced. And it has one of the absolute best final scenes slash images of the year, for sure. The editing from Blair McClendon helps a lot, too. Some of the scenes linger for what feels like a lifetime. One in particular early in the movie has Callum just on a balcony in the dark, smoking a cigarette, and he's there for a handful of minutes. And I understand for some people, that's going to make them check out. They might fall asleep. They may get bored because this is not the kind of movie where a lot is, in quotes, happening. But a combination of scenes like that and then others that come to a very abrupt end perfectly evoke the act of remembering. And that is what this movie is really all about. Wells has great command of the details. And I found myself being slowly sucked into the relationship between the two main characters, Sophie and Callum, played brilliantly by newcomer Frankie Corio and Paul Mescal, respectively, to the point where I didn't even realize how much it was affecting me until I was sobbing uncontrollably and trying to fully understand how it was that I arrived at that place. Then despite that, I wanted to immediately watch it again with the new context that is revealed in the final act. It's information that helps to frame what we saw previously. Watching it again, I suspect, will be even more impactful because I'll be able to do so with a new perspective. The film style is what many might call a tone poem. It leans heavily on presenting a mood with only a small significance given to the actual progression of a storyline. Like I said earlier, we follow primarily Sophie's point of view 
and are asked to experience this summer vacation with her. We see her very clearly depressed father through her eyes, and occasionally we get glimpses of him alone, maybe showing us what an older Sophie might think back on when trying to fill in the blanks between memories. And that is precisely what this is built on. It's memories. Those small moments that define how we recall our relationships, especially once someone we care deeply for is gone. All of this is backed by both a lovely score from Oliver Coates and a perfectly curated soundtrack of popular tunes that includes an unforgettable, haunting remix of Under Pressure and an impressively sweet karaoke scene featuring what I think is maybe the best love song ever in Unchained Melody. Sophie also comes of age during the summer. She interacts with a bunch of older teens in a way that she's never done before. She has her first kiss. There's a conversation with her father about that in it is one of the standout moments of the movie. His reaction is priceless. It's how we all want to believe that we'll respond if our child was to confide in us in such a personal way. But the question I had was, will we? Their relationship is, it's equal parts heartwarming and heartbreaking. Sophie doesn't understand why her dad is so down all the time, but she knows he's fighting against something. We as the audience know that it's likely related to a split with Sophie's mom and that he has a general feeling of failure, but he does all he can to put on a face and give Sophie this memorable vacation. Is that because he thinks it's going to be their last one together? Well, we get glimpses and hints that he might. The chemistry between the two actors, Corio and Mescal, it's honestly tremendous, but Mikal's heart-rending performance is the thing that is most impossible to shake once the credits roll, and he will definitely be showing up on my ballot during end-of-the-year awards for his work in this movie. The film really, it's just simply extraordinary in how it makes you feel. I don't totally understand where a present-day Sophie comes into play. We see her a few times come in the timeline and appear in these little vignettes. But, I mean, very, very rarely. It didn't detract too much from my experience, though, because, like I mentioned, I wanted to watch it again, and I want to kind of understand and put together the pieces of the timeline so that I understand whose perspective we're seeing at all times, because I think that that will inform the movie even more, uh, and it will actually enhance the emotional effect that I already have felt. It made me empathetic. It made me ache for a world in which Callum could feel some semblance of peace in a way that would allow for him to be there for his daughter, not just now, but forever. And it also made me very proud to be a girl dad myself. We rarely see this kind of beautiful father-daughter relationship depicted on screen, and it is well worth treasuring when we do. After Sun is currently hanging on by a thread in a few theaters. It's limited release happened. It came out in early November, and it has really not stuck around, unfortunately. But keep an eye out for streaming and or video-on-demand options 
hopefully soon. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Facebook, on social channels. I promise I will be making it known as soon as I find out that this film is becoming available for people to watch because I want you to get a chance to see it. And I highly, highly, highly recommend uh, currently sitting around my top five of the year this movie is. It's really special to me. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope that you have enjoyed. Thank you, as always, for listening. It means the world. I appreciate it so much. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling filled.